Welcome to Season 2 of The Crack and Busters, where we are exploring the Great Sea Monster Crisis of 1987. This is Episode 212, How I Learned to Stop Worrying. I'm Keith Pilly. So, last week, the United States slash ADP and Soviet fleets faced each other in a tense standoff on the fringe of the North Atlantic Sea Monster Exclusion Zone, poising the world on the brink. As they stared each other down, a DJ on a pirate radio station in Iceland broke the news to the rest of the world that the waters around Iceland were full of sea monsters. The journalists of the Western world raced to find official confirmation and finally got it from the maverick Colorado Senator Hunter S. Thompson. This week. So, about that standoff. But first, uh, let's step back and talk about the big picture of how we got to this place. The United States was the first country in the world to develop nuclear weapons through the Manhattan Project during World War II. The U.S. was also the first country to use nuclear weapons, dropping two atomic fission bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the war, and then dropping six more on its own territory in 1948 when San Francisco Bay was overrun by sea monsters. The U.S.'s monopoly on nuclear weapons didn't last long. The Soviet Union actually had several spies embedded into the Manhattan Project. And, maybe just as importantly, once it had been confirmed that the bombs could be made, the principles behind them were clear to anyone with a sufficiently advanced grasp of physics and enough of a manufacturing plant to overcome the engineering challenges. This meant that the Soviet Union had working atomic bombs by 1949, and by 1960, smaller countries such as the UK and France had nuclear arsenals. The first generation of nuclear weapons worked on the principle of fission. They split atoms of uranium-235 with immense amounts of energy released as the bonds holding the atoms together broke. In the early 1950s, the United States and Soviet Union both tested the vastly more powerful hydrogen bomb. Hydrogen bombs used fission bombs as a sort of ignition switch, harnessing their energy and using it to fuse hydrogen atoms into helium, replicating the process that powers the sun and other stars. If the first generation fission warheads were the most powerful weapons that had ever existed when they were created, the new H-bombs were actually several orders of magnitude more powerful than they were, with explosive payloads that were often hundreds of times, hundreds of times, more powerful than the early fission bombs that had been able to destroy entire cities. And the two superpowers stockpiled them in numbers enough to literally destroy every city on the surface of the planet Earth. The bombs used in the 1940s were all dropped from propeller-driven B-29 bombers. Everyone on both sides could see that this wasn't ideal, because bombers were slow and fairly easy to shoot down. So over the next several decades, first, faster jet-propelled bombers were developed. And then missile technology was improved and warhead size reduced so that missiles could be launched in a ballistic arc into the lower reaches of space and come down accurately on their target in half an hour, traveling at speeds that rendered them completely immune to intercept. 
And as this missile technology was being developed, it was realized that land-based missiles would always be vulnerable to missile strikes at their immobile launch sites. So both sides worked on missiles that could be launched from submarines, and developed new breeds of silent nuclear-powered submarines whose entire job was to hide under sea and be ready to launch a spread of nuclear missiles at a moment's notice if war was declared. Way back in episode one, we talked about the GI-UK sonar line that ran near Iceland. Well, this was part of the U.S. ADP program to uh, detect Soviet missile subs as they crept into the Atlantic. All of this built to a status quo, achieved in the mid-60s and reinforced afterwards, where the two superpowers essentially had guns pointed at each other's heads and could not fire them without the other having a chance to fire back before the bullet arrived. Even with missiles launched from subs parked just off the adversary's coast, there would always be enough time to detect the launch and order a counter-strike if the system was efficient enough. So the system was made efficient enough on the theory that this would deter a first strike by the other side. In practice, what this meant was that by the Nixon administration, the presidency had acquired powers that it was never intended to have. The American command and control system, and this was absolutely mirrored by the Russian equivalent, gave the president discretion to launch a nuclear strike at a moment's notice. There were a couple of safeguards, like the need for a launch order to be confirmed by a Senate-confirmed member of the cabinet, but basically for expediency's sake, the ability to launch a civilization-ending war had been added to the portfolio of powers inherent to the presidency. And in an eternal round of war games conducted over and over to try to suss out winning strategies in nuclear confrontations, the national security establishment always circled back to the same result. If one of the superpowers launched at the other, even in the most limited fashion, escalation to an empty the silos, destroy civilization type scenario was inevitable. It happened every time they played it out. The nuclear brink that this created had been explored once before, in 1959, in the Japanese Civil War. I don't want to go too far afield into that crisis, since it's very much its own fascinating story. But in broad outlines, U.S.-backed rebels had been pushing to overthrow the Soviet puppet state installed by Stalin during the previous American sea monster crisis after World War II, and found themselves bogged down in the north of the island of Honshu after making major gains. Against his better judgment, President Adlai Stevenson ordered a carrier task force from the U.S. 3rd Fleet to steam in within air range and provide air support. The Soviet Pacific Fleet intercepted them off the Kuril Islands, and the two fleets stared each other down for three days, with numerous minor clashes happening as the tension raised. At one point, a Soviet submarine fired a torpedo at an American destroyer, which missed. As this happened, American and Soviet strategic nuclear forces went on high alert and the Joint Chiefs were essentially constantly screaming at Stevenson that war was imminent and inevitable, and he needed to launch an all-out strike right now in order to inflict more casualties on the Soviets than would have been possible if he waited until they launched first. Stevenson resisted the push, although this was amid mounting fear that the Chiefs might just up and carry out a military coup. Finally, the tension was broken down when rebels up in the Kurils broke out of their besieged stronghold and started surging downward, allowing Stevenson a face-saving opportunity to turn the fleet around and defuse the crisis without conflict. But for days, the entire world was convinced that there was not going to be a tomorrow. 
sorry to have walked through that complicated, frightening bummer, but it's important because I really need you to understand the pressures that were on Robert Kennedy as he sat on board Air Force One absorbing updates from the North Atlantic and receiving reports from SAC, that's the Strategic Air Command, about the readiness status of U.S. forces as they settled into Stratstad Orange, the state just short of war. If I've made static statements like, the fleets were in a standoff, you have to remember that this isn't how the information was coming into Kennedy. Instead, he had a naval briefing officer constantly saying things like, the Soviets just routed the Moskva and a couple of destroyers to the southwest. Sinclant Intelligence thinks they might be setting up for an end run to get a cleaner shot at the Nimitz group. Yellen's going to respond by sending a couple of pairs of F-14s into their likely path to deter them, and so on, knowing that each of these tiny maneuvers included a chance that a young pilot or some junior ship commander might get confused or excited and pull a trigger. Kennedy was under pressure, the likes of which few human beings had ever experienced. Even Harry Truman had the luxury of a slower pace, as his nuclear crisis had built up, and the stakes there had been the loss of the Bay Area, not the end of the world. Only Adlai Stevenson and Nikita Khrushchev in 1959 came close, and it's worth remembering that both sides' missile technology and warhead size had gotten dramatically better since then. Juliana Burke describes this stretch like this. Quote, endless tense discussion, endless cups of terrible coffee, no sleep. I had done my dissertation on Stevenson's decision-making process during the Japanese Civil War crisis, and I kept thinking here how much I'd gotten wrong. We weren't calm, rational people gaming out the pros and cons of possible strategies. We were all goddamn wrecks who hadn't gotten an hour of sleep in days, barely holding ourselves together. This had gotten out of hand. We had lost control. There was a sea monster crisis happening, and there was nothing we could do about it because we'd created a separate crisis with the Russians, who were convinced that we were lying about the sea monsters because we'd been publicly lying before. We kept trying to focus on keeping things from getting worse in the North Atlantic, but these crazy reports would come in. People were freaking out on the streets of Chicago. The governor was activating the National Guard to keep the peace, and so on. And, in the back of my mind, the rough chain of the way this always gamed out kept playing. Some final provocation, probably a misunderstanding, makes one of our ships fire a conventional weapon at one of theirs. Backed into a corner, they fire back a small battlefield nuke. If we're at Stratstat Red by this point, our rules of engagement give the commander on the scene discretion to respond in kind. Any admiral we've got is going to. The fleets trade small nukes. Tit-for-tat escalation starts, and fearing that we'd lose most of our forces to a Soviet first strike, we launch missiles at their silos. They detect the launch and empty theirs at us. We see that and escalate the only way we can, launching a second wave at their population centers while our first wave is in the air. They do the same. Then we all die. I kept thinking about telling my husband to take the kids to the country. But there was no point. It'd be better for them to be in Washington if it happened. Quicker. Cleaner. End quote. The way the American, well, American and ADP forces were arrayed, the group built around the supercarriers Ranger and Kitty Hawk was to the south, and the group built around the Nimitz and Enterprise was several hundred miles to the north. The theory here was that the two ADP naval forces could be in a position to hit the Russians from both sides if hostilities broke out, but in practice, the constant back-and-forth maneuvering and counter-maneuvering meant that the northerly group had wandered into the sea monster exclusion zone. 
Javier Delgado was, of course, on board the Flag Island, part of the Northerly group, through all this. Quote, Yeah, that was a fun day, sitting in CIC, trying to stay up on things, waiting for the end of the world. I figured, hey, if this did go off, well, at least five of those Russian cans had nuclear cruise missiles, and we were on a ship with a flight deck, so one of them would have our names on it, and at least it would be quick. That was in the back of my mind, but of course, you don't get to where I've been in life if you just sit around and listen to the nervous little voices inside your head. That tape was playing in the background, but really most of my attention was talking to my boys Coasty, Hickok, and uh, Muff Diver as we tried to sketch out some kind of maneuver we could pull to use our D69 skills to help the situation more than just sitting around pulling long faces. We were going to call up General Abernathy and pitch him on an idea where Muff Diver would use his subplane to sneak us over to the Kuznetsov and maybe we could, I don't know, blow her up from the inside or something. You know, like strike a blow just for the sake of it, just before the big warheads flew. And then the goddamn ship lurched, and Captain Bullock came onto the intercom asking us to please man Coasty's assault hovercraft and get out there and burn off some tentacles if we wouldn't mind. And I thought, Jesus Christ, this too? End quote. The ADP naval group centered on the Nimitz had slowly but steadily moved north in the maneuvering and counter-maneuvering with the Soviets. This had all been to either get a positional advantage on the Russians or to keep them from getting one, but in practice, it meant that the ships had moved back towards the sea monster infestation. And now the monsters were present. In the classic large group approach favored by sea monsters when they were swarming as lesser creatures, the screening vessels on the north side of the group were all engulfed by the tentacles of multiple giant octopi and krakens, close to simultaneously, the tentacles erupting from the water and latching onto the ship's bows and sterns. As alarm sirens rang out throughout the fleet and shipboard marines on board the stricken ships sprung into action, the entire fleet was startled to see the same thing happen to the Nimitz, the enormous supercarrier serving as Admiral Yellen's flagship. Mammoth green tentacles sprang out of the sea and wrapped themselves around her bow, crushing several members of the deck crew into pulp in the process, and an even larger set, a sick, vomitous dark yellow, erupted and engulfed the stern, knocking overboard several planes that had been spotted on the deck. The Nimitz was several times larger than the fleet carriers of the late 40s, but these tentacles, and the creatures attached to them, were big enough to grab the ship like a toy. This was the point at which Captain Bullock on the Flag Island, which was also being grabbed by tentacles, as well as struck several times by a sea serpent, asked Delgado and the rest of the D-69 team to go back out and help fight. Delgado says, quote, After all the times we'd been doing this, us and the support crew on the Flag Island had the drill down pretty well to get that hovercraft launched in a hurry. So inside of ten minutes, we were out there rocking the flamethrowers to get the ship cleared. If it seemed kind of easy before, this round really sucked. These fuckers were bigger and tougher, and the fucking squid that was locked onto the bow only had eight tentacles wrapped onto the ship, so it had two for you to fucking swing at us. We lost a couple of the Flag Island seamen who'd been seconded to us this way. Fucking tentacles just swept them overboard off the hovercraft. And that's when we realized another of them goddamn giant jellyfish was lurking in the water out there. Before we could even think of trying to rescue the poor fuckers, we could see that they were all tangled up in jellyfish tentacles and their bodies started jerking from whatever weird toxins were getting pumped into them. I looked away before the dissolving part kicked in. 
I was already starting to run low on juice for my flamethrower. Poor fucking thing had seen a lot of action in the past few days, and even a ship as big as the Flag Island can only store so much extra. I was wondering about the ammo situations on all the ships around us, too. This was starting to look like something that could go south on us real fast. Being a little bit up above the water, our hovercraft had a little bit more protection from some of the monsters than the big boys whose hulls sat deep. But there were more and more of these giant fucking sharks circling around, and we'd all seen one jump out of the water and eat a goddamn F-14 out of the air. I shot Coasty a sour fucking look, and I could tell he was thinking the same thing. We'd been more or less ready to die in World War III half an hour ago, and now it looked like it was going to be sea monsters that punched our tickets after all. But not to worry, World War III was still just off screen waiting to happen. End quote. And events bore Delgado out. In the Combat Information Center of Nimitz, Admiral Yellen was doing his best to stay on top of multiple crises. The positional chess game with the Soviets, and now the all-out attack by sea monsters. And in his handling, he was in a difficult position. He was operating under separate rules of engagement for each of the situations. With regards to the Soviet fleet, his orders were clear. Absolutely do not fire unless fired upon. Do not provoke. Do not let them maneuver you into a disadvantageous position and detail a staff officer to keep constantly as on with Washington. As far as the sea monsters went, his rules of engagement from the abandoned extermination project were still in force. Do whatever was necessary to preserve and defend ships and, whenever possible, kill as many sea monsters as you can by whatever means necessary short of nukes. With a pair of enormous creatures grappling the Nimitz and trying to buckle the supercarrier's hull, Yellen saw his course of action as clear. Save the ship, and I mean coincidentally himself, but who can blame him there? To that eventuality, he ordered Captain Nick Hodge of the Aegis cruiser USS Vincennes to unleash a ship defense anti-monster tactic that had so far been left untried to swing the Vincent around a beam of the Nimitz and shotgun blast the forward Kraken with a load of flechette round anti-sea monster missiles. The Aegis system on the cruiser was built around stopping airborne threats by launching tons of small missiles at once from massive boxy launchers mounted on the ships. Navy Bureau of Ordnance staffers, tasked with working up theoretical systems to use against possible sea monster resurgences, had long thought that this system, loaded with flesh-tearing ammunition, might make an effective way to remove a sea monster grappling a ship. It was time to find out. So Hodge maneuvered the Vincennes around, and the para-frigates on station between cleared themselves out of the way, and the marines and deck crew of the Nimitz's flight deck trying and failing to fight off the tentacles were ordered to take cover. And then Hodge ordered the launch, and in a matter of seconds, the Vincennes box launchers emptied themselves out onto the Nimitz's bow in a massive flurry of smoke. The missiles arced across the sea between the two ships, and just before they reached the Nimitz, a radar proximity fuse exploded, cracking the missile casing open to release hundreds of dart projectiles lined with razor-sharp blades. When the flurry ended and the smoke cleared, the Nimitz cruised sluggishly out of the smoke, her bow clear of tentacles, but absolutely sodden with blood and chunks of maimed flesh. It had worked. Cheered, Yellen ordered Hodge to reload tubes and positioned the Vincennes for another blast aimed at the Nimitz's stern tormentor. There was only one problem. 
Okay, and I want to interject here that most of my information about what was going on in the Soviet side of this comes from the book Gennady Bababin wrote after defecting to the United States in 1991. Babanin was in the Soviet naval ministry during the crisis. So even if he wasn't on the scene, he seems to be pretty familiar with what was happening at the time. There's been a little bit of pushback on the credibility of some of the details he drops. But at least for now, the consensus seems to be that he's the best source we have. And of course, the KGB got to him in 1994, or if you want to believe the official story, he accidentally ate a bunch of polonium. So there's no way to go back and grill him on discontinuities. Anyway, so, according to Babanin, Soviet radar operators on board the Kuznetsov and several other Soviet ships had been monitoring the American fleet pretty closely and had no idea what was going on when the sea monsters attacked. The one thing that every source agrees on is that whatever the Kremlin knew at this point, the Soviet fleet at sea had no idea that the sea monster infestation was real. The American ships abruptly breaking formation and separating to fight the sea creatures looked, to them, like the ships preparing for an attack by dispersing so that fewer of them could get taken out by an individual warhead. And then they detected the Vincennes launching a barrage of missiles. And following protocol... Several of them simultaneously informed the fleet commander, Admiral Pavel Golubev, that they detected multiple missile launches. It didn't occur to them that the Vincennes might be launching at a ship in its own fleet to clear it of sea monsters. They just saw a shitload of missiles in the air all of a sudden. So Golubev thought that he was in the narrow window where he could launch a counterattack before being vaporized. So, acting more or less on reflex, he gave the single codeword signal for the Soviet missile cruiser Moskva to launch a pair of cruise missiles armed with tactical nuclear warheads at the Nimitz. He limited the response just to this in what he considered a probably vain attempt not to escalate the situation any further. The launch was detected by radar pickets throughout the American fleet there was only so much that could be done defensively. Although General Bryant at NORAD, given this information, sent a message to all American strategic forces to expect Stratstat Red at any moment now, and told all American strategic nuclear forces to wait for the go order from the president. With the fleets as close as they were, the transit time for the cruise missiles was a matter of minutes. In the normal scheme of things, and until just a few minutes previously, there would have been a ring of Aegis-equipped ships around the Nimitz whose anti-air missile systems would have had a decent chance of intercepting both cruise missiles. In fact, the USS Biloxi was still close enough to get one of these. But given the sea monster attack, and the space clearing to let the Vincennes clear the Nimitz's bows, and the fact that the Vincennes' own Aegis tubes were still loaded with anti-sea creature munitions, one of Moskva's missiles got through, and detonated as an airburst, low over the Nimitz. It was a medium-yield tactical weapon, 30 kilotons, substantially bigger than the Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Bay Area bombs, but still much smaller than the huge strategic therms that were waiting to go. The blast erupted about 500 feet above the Nimitz. If you were looking at it, it would have looked like a second sun had formed, briefly, before you went blind. The detonation point was actually substantially hotter than the surface of the sun. The wave of heat and radiation blasted out first, blanketing the Nimitz from above. Those still on deck or in the ship's island superstructure were killed more or less instantly, including Yellen and his staff. This was followed closely by the blast wave, a wall of immense force moving through the air that, since the warhead had gone off above the ship, pummeled the Nimitz down from above, staving in her flight deck by a few feet. But she'd been designed with nuclear attacks in mind. 
The ship's flight deck and primary hull turned out to be surprisingly resilient. Some analysts now think that Nimitz might have stayed afloat if the raging fires that immediately broke out hadn't done her in. Vincennes and the destroyer Collins also suffered grievous damage in the blast, but fortunately, and that's using that word in a very qualified sense, the rest of the fleet was dispersed enough to suffer only from moderate blast damage and, of course, fairly serious rates of radiation burns to the crew, especially those above decks. With Yellen and his staff, presumed dead, command of the American fleet fell to Rear Admiral Dick Benson on board the Enterprise, which was still afloat a couple miles away, although fighting some fires that had broken out on her deck. Benson received the Stratstat Red warning shortly before the warhead had detonated. After the blast, and after getting damage reports from Enterprise and other ships in the fleet, he was about to put all of his remaining planes in the air to be ready for the go signal when, well, to be honest, maybe it's best if I just let Javier Delgado take it from here. Quote, Motherfucker. That was the wildest shit I've ever lived through. I guess we were just flat lucky when the Sove warhead went off over the Nimitz. Costi had swung the hovercraft around to burn off a fucking serpent that had wrapped itself around the front end of Flag Island. Out of nowhere, the fucking thing uncoils and slithers off to the north like it's got a hot date at the North Pole. We're sitting there nestled up close and in the lee of the ship trying to figure out where we're needed next when the bomb went off. We were far enough away to be out of the worst of the blast, and the bulk of the ship protected us from the radiation. I guess protected us from going blind. Still, there was no doubt what had just happened. And me and Coasty, we knew what was coming next. We looked at each other, nodded, figured, what the fuck? Let's go see if we can't use our little hovercraft to take out one of their anti-air pickets. Maybe clear the way the tiniest bit for the counter-strike. We knew it was a suicide mission, but whatever. At this point, we were dead men anyway figured, hey, what the hell, at least our southern naval group was unscathed, as far as we knew, and in a good spot to wipe the fucking Russians off the sea before all the big stuff flew. Maybe we could help with that. And then all of a sudden the radio crackles, and an unfamiliar voice comes on. French accent, you can tell immediately. Says something like, attention all American ships, attention all American ships, Please move south at best speed. Everything in these waters will be destroyed in 30 minutes. If you sail at best speed at heading 180, you'll be clear of the blast zone. And then it repeated the same message in Russian. I looked at Kosti again. What the fuck was going on? As D-69 team leaders, we'd both seen enough of the nuke contingency plans to know that at least a tactical counterstrike should have been ordered the second those cruise missiles got picked up on radar. We didn't see anything happening. Then Admiral Benson comes on the radio and orders the fleet to turn to 180 and head south, staying at high strategic readiness. Radar showed the Russians doing the same thing. End quote. And that is it for this week. Join me next week as we stand on the brink and stare into at least two different abysses. Be safe. Boys, get out there and bust them brains.
Let's go!